0: Faster, stronger, fitter. This is this week's screen watching. My name, Dan Barrett, mumbling through the word screen watching that I hope no one noticed. Uh, I'm joined here, as always, by Simon Foster. We have what is legally defined, and I have spoken to the crack legal team about this uh, from our team of, um, gosh, I was having to pull out three really quick, funny legal names then I couldn't quite do it.
1: (laughs) Martin Barton and Fargo. That was the old, that was the old hey, hey, it's Saturday. Legal team Martin Barton and Fargo. Okay, uh, I always like that
0: on episodes of the Late Show, being the Australian Late Show and not the Late Show with David Letterman. That yeah. always have in the credits that legal um, advice was provided by. And I'm trying to think, what was the name of the manager from the Partridge Family?
1: Oh, Mr. Kincaid.
0: Yeah, Ruben Kincaid. Kincaid. <laughs> and so in the credits for the Late Show, I'd always say <laughs> legal Ruben Kincaid, and that always made me laugh. <laughs> Anyway, guys, we are here to talk about all things screen. Uh, The movies we watch, the TV we uh, enjoy, sometimes endure through. Sometimes the movies we endure through. That's Mm. certainly the case with one of the movies we're talking about today. Which one, you'll find out shortly. But yeah, we do have movies we're discussing. Simon, who we talking about, Wonka. I um, am... What's a word that's even more trepidatious than trepidatious? But I'm certainly that when it comes to Wonka. Mm. There's a black and white Bradley... um, which Bradley is he? He's the Bradley he's the Cooper.
1: Cooper. Yeah, yeah.
0: Bradley Cooper movie called Maestro. At least I assume it's black and white. I think it's on a black and white poster somewhere. Um, I'm going to talk about a Mexican movie called Familiar, and then I'm going to talk about a TV program called Carol and the End of the World. Have you heard of half of those? You know, you're probably further along than my co-host Simon Foster. <laughs> In
1: these two podcasters.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm going to play the opening credits. I'm going to watch one of those movies, and we'll come back, and we're going to talk about things. Folks, we'll see you in a second.
1: This is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What? That's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie.
0: Boy, that intro went on a while. This is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. Simon, I'm going to trust that you're well. We're going to put that into the minutes. This week, we're just diving right in. We've got the movies, we've got the TV shows. We're getting in there. Um, I I had a massive storm last night. I've got some cleanup I've got to do. Let's dive into the reviews for the week. It stinks. Taking us straight into a world of pure imagination. It's the Timothy Chalamet movie, Wonka. I've spent the past seven years traveling the world perfecting my craft.
1: You see, I'm something of a magician, inventor, and chocolate maker. So quiet up and listen down. Nope, scratch that, reverse it.
0: Mr. Wonka, I can say you're a man of great ingenuity.
1: What are you doing? I'm making chocolate, of course. Well, I'm not entirely sure that you're excited about Wonka, Dan. I know you have an aversion (laughs) to prequels. and. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I am in no way interested in this movie. And can
0: okay. I ask a question before you dive in? Cause it may. Sure. Let's make
1: this happen. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. So there is a trend that I've noticed from mm. trailers released this year. I haven't really seen them do it so heavily in the past, but right. they're employing the exact same trick that movie distributors who are releasing foreign language movies into this country tend to play, which is they don't allow any dialogue into the trailer. Now, if you watch the trailers for Wonka and The Color Purple and quite a number of other big lavish musicals that are coming your way, there mm-hmm. is not a skerrick of information that this is a musical that you're off to see. And yep. I'm wondering, is this the impact of the financial collapse of West Side Story, which was something to considered a bit of a sure thing a few years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is this the ramifications of that? And follow-up question. I know you love your musicals. I cannot stand them. Okay. But... Why would you hide the one selling point with this? Is it maybe a sign that people actually don't like musicals, or are people just scared that they don't like musicals? Go.
1: Before I get into my review, yes, you make an interesting point. West Side Story certainly underperformed, and I imagine that certainly the color purple and arguably wonka were green lit. Um, it, prior to West Side Story hitting cinemas. So I'm not surprised that the music has been hidden away. I'm not surprised the music's been hidden away in the Wonka trailer because it's pretty terrible music all the way through. I am surprised <laughs> it's been hidden away in The Color Purple because it's already a big smash on Broadway and people know the song, so that'll be one of the big selling points for to, to get people in. So maybe it's a, a, a different thing, although I guess that was also the selling point for West Side Story. To get to Wonka... Uh, I would, and it's a it's a valid point you're making that from the very opening scene in Wonka where they where Timothy Chalamet in a fairly flat sort of singing voice bursts into song, you realise that this is going to be a musical. Um, but it's kind of still a surprise for someone who knows movies and knows this was a musical. I was still sort of taken aback that it was straight into the musical elements. So, having said that. The film kind of forgets it's a musical at a certain point. The front part of Wonka is heavily loaded with some fairly negligible tunes, some cute sort of toe-tapping ones. Um, it certainly forgets it's about chocolate because there's not a whole lot of chocolate stuff in that first hour of Wonka. It's I, basically... I'm, a- there,
0: I'm there for the chocolate.
1: <laughs> I was
0: planning to, a- I was planning to get along to my mo- local multiplex to so have a couple of blocks of Tony's uh, chocolate only just
1: sort of sitting in my... <laughs> Yum. in my lap, and I was going to go for it. Yeah, no, this is a... He turns up with the, the memory of his mother sort of thick in his mind, who played by Sally Hawkins in Flashback. Um, he is determined, he being Wonka, uh, is determined to make this magical world from the recipes that his mother gave him many years before, but comes up against the chocolate empire, comes up against the uh, big chalk, I guess you could call it. Um uh, the film then sort of gets... Sorry, can I I clarify? Sorry, Big Chocolate. So this
0: is like an anti-large-scale chocolate consumerism sort of piece. It's like, you know, railing against capitalism. You're really overthinking it. (laughs) At any... At any point, Simon, do they explore the uh, just shocking human abuse issues in the
1: chocolate industry? No, they do not. Other than the abuse that they they uh, put upon audiences in watching this. No, that's going a bit too heavy. I didn't. I didn't not like this film, and I'll get to that in a minute. But so y- you're stuck in Olivia Coleman's downstairs um, laundry factory for the first hour of this film, where a series of Faces that you know from shows like Downton Abbey and Taskmaster and certainly Ghost, there's a whole lot of the Ghost cast members in this one, um, do a bit of a soft shoe shuffle every now and again. But it's not really until the maybe the 70-minute mark when things get really chocolatey. There's a whole lot of different elements at play here that make it a, a fairly imbalanced kind of film. Uh, Paul King is the director, and he's lauded left to right, somewhat inexplicably for the two Paddington films. This one's essentially Paddington Three. If you know your Paddington films, he's uh, the the stuffed bear is chasing after his mother and, and and wanting to remember his family and has is sort of burdened by memories and and longings for his his past and and his and his own mother. That's exactly what Willy Wonka is in this one. He's doing the whole thing to to um, impress upon his mother's and his mother's memory. The, 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 her love of chocolate um and it and it kind of works, and I didn't hate it, but it takes a long time to generate any kind of a spark um it's It's lovely to look at in places, but then it's also quite dour and I don't mean this in a negative way, but it is a very British film. It sort of sort of um is overcome with the desire to be Dickensian and create that sort of dark working class. Um, world that that Dickens sort of wrote of, and and which Ray Dahl kind of explored in his book, but did so with a much more bitter tongue. This one is a pure sweetness all the way through, which is maybe appropriate for a movie about chocolate, but which also sucks a bit of the the nightmarish elements which made the Gene Wilder films so so lovable and so endearing and and so timeless. Um, this is Chalamet's Wonka is in no way connected either in his performance or in the tone of the film to the Gene Wilder version. And somewhere in the mix here, you've got the Johnny Depp version as well, both of which I prefer to to this one. Likeable enough, the families will settle in for it for a couple of hours in an air-conditioned cinema, but this feels a little bit too much corporate and not enough chocolate for me.
0: I mean, sure. Uh, Look, I... (laughs) I'd completely forgotten (laughs) that there was the uh, Tim Burton Wonka film from a few years ago.
1: Huge hit, huge hit. And I don't know if this will be a huge hit. I don't know if I can imagine American families lining up to see something so British. I guess they did with Paddington, although it wasn't a blockbuster on on the the Tim Burton, Johnny Depp scale. But I don't know. It's a a maybe at this point.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Paddington 2 seems pretty widely revered. But that said, I don't know. There is pretty much nothing about this movie that I'm particularly keen on, and I loved the book as a kid, and I was very oh, fond of that really? film, and yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I there is I think, no way I can big, see this big becoming old girl a... old fan
0: for his... Look, so I'm a big old gal fan for his uh, children's books, as well as his political views. Of course, yes,
1: I can imagine you would be coming from Queensland. Um, look, it's... A- <laughs> What? It's a film that I do not think will have the repeat viewing and lovability potential that the, the Gene Wilder film had. It, it, that will still be the movie that they, the kids put on their slot in their VHS tapes to watch over the coming years. Yeah, I don't know. Like, It's got two sort of strikes against it.
0: which is first strike is I know it's a musical and that just completely... Just negates any interest I really have. But the second thing is, I'm not entirely bought into Timothy Chalamet movie star. Okay, like I don't have a big problem with him, but I don't like. I just don't really believe that he can lead a movie.
1: Yep. Yeah, I get it. I'm I'm sort of the same. I Mm. he he seems to be going through that thing that Jude Law went through a few years back when everybody believed he was going to be a movie star and he has to be a movie star because he's so good-looking and he's so charismatic and um, he's all those things that a movie star should be. But in a world where there aren't really movie stars anymore, um, it seems odd that they're sort of shoehorning him into shows like Wonka. I thought he was good in Dune and he was certainly good in the Call Me By Your Name all those years ago. Like, he he burst onto the scene um, and burst into that peach appropriately, you know, with a lot of charisma. But... (sighs) I quite liked him on Saturday Night Live the other week. He's got a sense of humour. I don't think he takes himself too seriously. And I wish he wouldn't have, and, and that's another element of Wonka that kind of irked me a little bit is that there are moments where it takes itself very seriously and it's really trying to be a very powerful sort of statement about emotions and memory and motherhood and all that sort of thing, which it, which it didn't need to be so on the nose about. So if I gave ratings, this would be a three out of five for me. It's, it's kind of well made and kind of good, but fairly negligible.
0: If I gave ratings, like, come on, you just gave it a rating. Anyway, on the folks, Let's move on. <laughs> on the, yeah, the sideways thumb on a cymometer. <laughs> folks, let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk about a new film which has debuted on Netflix.com. It's called Familia. Familia, Hey, hey. Hay una cosa importante. Recibimos una oferta de Foods por La tierra, nah. los olivos, el molino, el envasado, todo. A ver, ustedes tres tienen que hablar. Familiar Simon is a movie from Mexico. It concerns a family who are coming home to the family estate. So the family business has been that they run an olive farm. Okay, it's a fairly successful olive farm. It's you know it's been raking in the
1: cash for the family over the years. I thought you were saying familiar, as in it's something we're familiar with. So it's a familia.
0: Yeah, but I'm not going to do some sort of horribly offensive accent work. <laughs> Let's stop where I'm at, that's Simon. F-
1: that's up for me to do. That's what yeah. I do.
0: That's up for me to do. Sorry, I just fell into a little bit of the um, Super
1: Mario, the Chris Pratt style.
0: I oh, know I wasn't thinking so much Super Mario as much as our friends from the House of Gucci.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, and I saw Ferrari during the week. He's got another great accent to add to the. Anyway, I I digress. You go on Can't about wait. your familia. <laughs>
0: Anyway, uh, family, they, uh, it's an olive farm. Uh, the, it's grown up kids at this point, so they're in like their you know, 30s to 40s. Uh, they've all gone off to live lives that maybe aren't necessarily up to the expectations that the father had, that they'd live like a happy, more fulsome life. They've all got some issues going on. So you've got three daughters. Uh, one of them, she's probably the most sort of put together. She's got a family, you know, pretty sort of family unit, but she's just not entirely happy. But she's, and sorry, this is a bit of a spoiler because they reveal this about halfway through the film, but she's playing to move to Chicago. And part of it is, is that she's not really happy when she's at home in Mexico, but also the husband knows she's not going to be happy in Chicago either. She'll just be thinking of Mexico. The whole time so you know that's her biggest sort of dramatic sort of uh, concern going on you've got the sort of middle-aged child who is a woman who married a guy fairly young in her life and she doesn't really love him and she's been having sort of quiet affairs to try to feel vital and rich and she keeps on leaving information around for the husband to find out about the affairs so not everything's great going on in that relationship and then you've got the youngest daughter who is uh, visiting the family um, get together. She's pregnant. She's got a girlfriend with her, but the girlfriend's like, it's not a planned pregnancy by any sort of means. It's a new relationship she's got with this woman, but there's mystery over who is the father of the child. And I'm not going to ruin that, but you know, it's, you know, it becomes a plot point at some point in the film. So you've got these three adult children. Uh, they've also got a brother who's uh, got down syndrome, who lives on the estate with the family. Uh, their mother had passed away uh, many years prior. So it's a family that's haunted by a lot of um, loss and concern, and nobody really sort of has a strength of conviction as to what their identity is and what they're really after out of life. So they all converge for this sort of family dinner that their father sort of called them all for, and they all get together sort of rest- reasonably frequently, as it's sort of um, understood, but not super frequently either. Uh, so like, there's always a bit of catching up as to what's going on in each other's lives. So you got that happening. The father drops a bombshell, and this is what the trailer sort of largely based around. There's been an offer made on the olive farm, and so he is uh, very keen to sell up. Obviously, he's running it sort of by himself, and you know um, he's getting on in years. Uh, so he's like, "Hey, look, um, offer to sell the place. Um, I'll only sell the place if all of the kids are in agreement that they want to see the place sold." And so all I these, kids you're going to have... say that all the
1: kids are involved with the sale as well. You can have them as well. <laughs>
0: Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, there's some of them I probably think he'd probably like to offload if you could but you know sure. maybe that's my own personal opinion. This them. sounds
1: like a very sort of uh, convoluted family drama dynasty well, style. I, I wouldn't say it's a convoluted
0: thing like when you watch the trailer and you see the because the trailer is largely built around like this announcement saying hey look we're going to sell the farm but like each of you kids have to have a bit of a say as to whether you want to and the kids have an emotional attachment to the house it's where they grew up it's where they experienced sure. like a number of major life milestones and also the ghost of their mother is Kind of a presence, sort of, as part of this as well. Um, in that you know, they don't want to say goodbye to the place where you know their mum was so rich and vital there. So, anyway, it's a sort of very down to earth family drama. It's not high theatrics of like a dynasty or Dallas or anything like that. It's not, it's not a telenovela. Not really con- well, this is kind of sort of the thing. I wouldn't say it's telenovela, like it isn't sort of again, telenovela can be sort of a little bit sort of broad and operatic to a certain oh, degree. For sure. It's not that. It is actually a fairly grounded relationship drama. The problem I've got with it is that I was convinced watching this it was based on a stage play because all of it is very stage play. There's quite a lot of monologuing taking place from a number of the characters. There's a lot of any time that the family members sit down and they have a deep and meaningful conversation with each other. There's sort of non sequiturs, which are sort of thrown in there you know, oh, do you remember that time that you flashed your breast at that nightclub bouncer? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. does this it's got to do with been, the yeah. sentence that was said beforehand or the sentence mm-hmm. that comes after this? Like, it's just kind of all these elements to make it seem like these characters had rich feel, like, fulfilling lives and they're all like deeply in each other's pockets with this rich family history. But mm-hmm. you're just sort of watching it as like, well, real people don't sort of speak like this. And I was particularly interested in watching this because I watched the trailer and I was like, this is kind of an interesting sort of dramatic conceit. And I kind of like lo-fi movies where it's really sort of characters relating to each other just on whatever small scale that they're um, having to face. Um, I, I, this, I was I about to say this bosses, seems like an unusual... It's un- just a terrible stage play.
1: I, like, I was going to say this does seem like an unusual choice for, for one of our review segments because... Is it is it a subtitled film? Is it is it a Mexican film? Yeah. Uh, but okay, also, it's all a right. Netflix
0: so, film, so you can either have subtitles or dubs or
1: whatever you want to do with it. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. All right. So, all right. So, I mean, it, it's great that we're reviewing this sort of stuff. We just – and certainly, you don't often review this sort of stuff, so it's great to hear these these um, this take on something a little bit different in this segment. But well, yeah, I'm, I'm the, not sure the problem is,
0: is I see that there's a number of gaps in your movie reviews, and sometimes I just need to fill them. <laughs> is it going to be anime yeah, this week? Is it going to be Mexican sure. family dramas? Who knows?
1: Yeah, exactly right. No, I'm not. A, I <laughs> yeah. wasn't aware of Familiar deep in no, my look, Netflix queue, so I will. I will no, check this one out. Is. Are there any stars in it? Is there any? Is, no. there, is, is there anyone of note in it? No. Well, that's not a bad thing. No.
0: No. So probably the notable name on off it, off it is face. the. Uh, there's the co-writer director whose name is uh, Rodrigo. Oh,
1: Rodrigo Garcia. Yeah.
0: You're looking I at think it on the he program, I did...
1: No, 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 no. I, 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 uh, he did, I think he did the Ryan Reynolds buried in the coffin movie. What was buried all those years ago? He's been around for a little while and made some good movies. So this might be a bit of a a passion project. I think so. If that's the same one.
0: Yeah. Uh, like he's certainly a director people like he's a name that I knew, but I certainly couldn't place it with anything specific. Oh, okay. I know why I know him, which was that he was an executive producer on in treatment. Possibly Albert Nobbs. He was the director of that film from a few years ago.
1: Yeah, Glenn Close. Uh, Okay, Familia is on Netflix as we speak, just in time for the uh, those Christmas days at home.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, mileage will vary on it a little bit, but yeah, I just found it disappointing and just too staged.
1: Fair enough. All right, let's move on to my next film review. It is the very oscar Beatty Bradley Cooper film Maestro.
0: If summer doesn't sing in you, then nothing sings in you. And if nothing sings in you, then you can't make music. Something she told
1: me. Hello, I'm Lenny. Hello, Felicia. Fans of Seinfeld will believe that uh, most conductors walk around without pants on. That doesn't happen in this, although there is a lot of time in this movie where Bradley Cooper is out of pants in his portrayal as Leonard Bernstein. As a young man, he was a bit of a tool man uh, leading a bisexual lifestyle that we see in uh, full in its fullest glory in the opening of uh, Maestro, his directorial follow-up to uh, what was that thing he did with Lady Gaga? Uh, Star is born. Uh, um, yeah, uh, this is the biopic of Leonard Bernstein, a man who is considered uh, the great American conductor, uh, the great American. Um, Composer, of course, he did the aforementioned West Side story with a number of other greats like Jerome Robbins, who's also represented in this film. Um, A very flamboyant theatrical figure. It gives Bradley Cooper the opportunity to don the makeup from the big nose to the liver spots later in age and uh, play this very big performance and very big character um, in what old school critics would call Oscar bait. It is a handsomely crafted, uh, beautifully mounted production with two great performances at the center of it. It's one of those films, it's a very tough film to love, even like. It's a movie that I admire. Bradley Cooper's a director who has done that thing that most smart young directors do and surround themselves with talented people who... Make his movie look really, really good. He does that with Carrie Mulligan, who plays his soulmate, um, and and uh, Felicia, um, and she does so with a very plummy British uh, accent uh, that becomes sort of upstate New York through the through the uh, course of the film. Um, also in there is Maya Hawke. Uh, very oddly, Sarah Silverman gets a role as Leonard Bernstein's sister. Um, So there's a lot of great people in front of the camera. There's a lot of great people behind the camera. Matthew Labatique is the cinematographer, and he does amazing work. So this is a beautiful-looking film, and at times it's a beautifully acted film, but it is a biopic, and your thoughts on musicals uh, certainly register with me when it comes to biopics. I think they're really kind of just the Wikipedia. The worst of them are the Wikipedia versions of people's lives, and I said this about Napoleon a couple of weeks ago and as much as i don't want to say it about maestro because there's a lot to admire about the film i i kind of do think that as well it doesn't really get inside his creative process it's it's essentially a love story and quite a good love story in much the same way that that a star is born wasn't so much about the music, but was about the the love story at the center of it. Um, this one's kind of the same. It's kind of the same, but it's also a true story. I wish I knew more about Bernstein. By the end of this, when I really, even with my limited knowledge of what Leonard Bernstein had done, I kind of knew everything that was in this film about him. Um, so once again, he's. Terrific in the parts, certainly so is she, but overall the film, which is produced by Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, and I would have liked to have seen what those two really um, specifically talented directors would have done with this sort of material, because Cooper's not quite the director um, to bring this to life in a way that I think an old Hollywood Um, hand might have been so once again a a great film to admire and it's certainly going to play heavily into the oscar season got a whole bunch of golden globe nominations through the year and has been on most uh, through the week and has been on most um best of lists and and nomination categories over the recent months uh but whether it's going to play and i don't know if it's going to play as convincingly on netflix either where, where it dropped overnight so um certainly worth a look admirable admirable effort
0: yeah, look, I'm pretty keen to see this film. So over the weekend, I'll give it a look, and I'll let you know how it looks on Netflix, the platform it was made for.
1: Some some in black and white. Uh, the the flashbacks to those glorious days of sort of 50s Broadway is in is in black and white uh, when the young Bernstein. And I should point out that the aging of Cooper in this is is superbly done. His his portrayal and the makeup they use is is excellent. Um, and he does sort of transform from the young Bernstein into the very old Bernstein, um, with greater plomb, Uh, and then it goes full color as they, they sort of get to the more contemporary versions of his life. So Maestro on Netflix, uh, check it out. Check it out. <laughs> That's terrible.
0: It really was. Uh, look, let's stick on talking about productions for the netflix.com also debuting for this weekend is Carol and the end of the world
1: towards earth it's unclear but we believe does your dog know it's the end of the world there isn't a single person out there who doesn't have it the hunger to do more be more live more I don't really know what I want. Everyone's got all these plans and I... Passive job walk-offs making work a thing of the past. The stock market bell rang for the
0: last time today. Every
1: second is precious now.
0: At the speed it's moving, and c will have the impact of a 10... We're million. not going to be upset. We just don't want you to miss out. A couple of weeks ago on this podcast, we were talking about apocalyptic movies. I think it was spurned by uh, Leave the World Behind. Might have been mm-hmm. the jumping off point for it. Uh, both of us, as part of our mid, mid podcast intermission segment, we talked about our favorite movies about the end of the world. Mm. Uh, one of the ones I flagged was a really cool little Canadian film called last night. And the premise of that one is what would people do on the, you know, in, in the lead up to the end of the world, like they know it's coming. So how do they live their lives? Um, in that film, we see the 24 hours leading right into what's going to be the end. Okay. So like, it's right at the end. Carol in the end of the world takes a very similar um, storytelling can seize, except it's not the final 24 hours. What we're seeing is um, when we join the series, uh, seven months before the world's going to end. So we know the world's going to end. Apparently there's a planet that's heading straight to Earth and it's going to careen in in seven months' time. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know what that looks like. Probably not good. Suspect <laughs> gravities and people's heads splishing together would probably be a reality Ew. of that. Oh
1: my God. But it's
0: in this, we've got seven months, but also it's not like at the beginning of this program we're finding out the world's going to end. We've already been in it for some time. So people have already started to develop a series of life changes. And that's largely what society's about at this point. Everyone's thinking, well, how do I live my life to the fullest, knowing I've got a limited amount of time left in the world? So. The titular character of this one, Carol, is a woman who is, I think, 53, if this is to be said, in 2023. Uh, she's certainly born in 1970, but she's about 50 years old. Uh, she's never married. She's left a lot of opportunities sort of behind. She's a quiet, nebbity sort of a person who has never really had a lot of uh, fulfillment in her life. She is definitely feeling this in the final months of the world. She looks at the world around her and everyone living their lives to what they are hoping to fill it as being the most fulfilled they can be. Uh, And she doesn't really seem to understand exactly what's happening as people are going past wearing, you know, um, horse heads and all sorts of other, you know, uh, post-apocalyptic stuff that you kind of expect. Uh, There's a fun recurring gag in this one where you see that there's just a lot of people who just choose to be naked at this point. Sure, but the joke seems be. to be that... Well, this is it. But the joke seems to be, Simon, that all of them are dudes.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> they, I they can never, imagine that's being true.
0: They never express it like that much. Like, you occasionally see, like, there are some women who are naked, like, in the privacy of their home. But there is a... Just any time that you're out and about and you just see, like, naked people in the background, always guys. And I just think that's
1: Animated pain. Does this does this feature animated peen?
0: Uh, look, so... The word animated is probably necessary here. I don't think I would actually mention that. Uh, This is an animated series. It's a limited series. So I think it's eight or 10 episodes. I'm going to say it's 10, but I'm pretty sure it's eight. Uh, Animated series. The guy behind it is this guy named uh, Dan Goodman. He's a guy who his pedigree is working on The Onion, like years ago when it was still funny. Uh, Working on The Onion, went on to work on The Colbert Report, uh, he's done some time working on community, and he's basically just one of these guys that seems to be just moving through just like the sort of hippest, sort of sharpest um, comedy of like the last fifteen years.
1: A he's learned on that I one. Imagine.
0: Yeah, and the pedigree is really strong. So, like you can see that um, if you look at his filmography, well, his you know work history, because obviously the onions not necessarily film. Uh, but if you look at his work history, you'd have an expectation of someone, and he certainly meets that in this. What we're watching here is something which is on like the same level of the greatest of onion works, which is something that speaks to the depths of humanity, okay, and really gets to our fundamental truth about us, okay, while also being laugh out loud, just really sort of gutturally funny. Um, and this show delivers that. I wouldn't say it was actually sort of laugh out loud funny, but there are so many sort of very quiet jokes sort of packed into this one that I was, if not audibly laughing, I was certainly alive on the inside, sort of very amused by this world. <laughs> but it's, it's, not, it's, it's not like an animated show, like, you know, a family guy or something like that, which is there delivered as the joke machine. This is mm-hmm. really trying to get to a um, tonal place with the Carol character because she is very insular and quiet and muted. And the show maintains that for the entire piece. While it's funny, it's certainly not, you know, trying to be overtly sort of gross and heading for the laugh. uh, But you, the mentioned the of it, you mentioned the yeah,
1: You mentioned the pain pain Go back to the I, I
0: was I was swinging back to that. So, what I think is important for people to realize is that because of the tone of this, because of the subject matter, and because of the level of joke telling on it, this isn't a kids or a family program by any means. This is made very much for adults. The visual style of it is, I think, hems too closely to a lot of that family guy, um, bento box style animation, okay? But that's also maybe to its benefit as well. Maybe people will find this and really get swept up in a way they may not have if it was more of a less contemporary animation style.
1: Uh, very quickly, what else have you been watching, Dan Barrett? Well, I see you've got here one. I'll mention mine very quickly first. We, st- I know you're a big Bardo fan from back in the day. Um, <laughs> oh geez. Paper Dolls is uh, a version, although it very clearly states at the start of the show that it is a, uh, a fictional and that it's uh, repl- it's sort of um, association with anything living or dead is is not to be implied. Uh, but Paper Dolls is Belinda Chapel's very. Uh, clear interpretation of her time within the Bardot group. Belinda Chappell was one of the five who were create, who's was, was thrown into the mix and created the all-girl band back in the 80s uh, She's got a uh, tell-all book out at the moment, and she's the executive producer of Paper Dolls, the new Paramount Plus show. Um, it is compelling television, I must say. It is um, a show that on the surface looks kind of chintzy and kind of caught, a sort of... Commercially, uh, not my cup of tea. But when you watch it and you look at the issues that are raised in it, and some of the performances which are terrific, I actually I'm, we're really enjoying Paper Dolls here in the the foster household. So um, it's on Paramount Plus. A lot of good music involved. Some pretty um, playing to the back row kind of acting from certainly from some of the men in here. Men are not treated well in this, and I'm all for that, of course. Um, but the talent on display and the bitchiness that. Uh, that comes across in in some of the performances makes it really enjoyable and they handle some pretty big issues at the time too there's some um obviously drugs and record industry nonsense and um self-esteem issues that all come up so paper dolls paramount plus probably worth the look if it's if if it's something that you would normally dismiss give the first couple of episodes a go it's not too bad what else have you been watching dan
0: yeah i still don't think i'm gonna give those first few episodes a go but anyway (laughs) Simon, the thing that I really got, uh, what, I, what I got along to this week, and the thing I was super excited about seeing was The Holdovers. This is the mm. new movie from Alexander Payne, who people would know from making, you know, most of our favorite movies, things like Sideways and Election, uh, everybody's favorite movie, Downsizing. Okay, that may not be true. Oh, geez, he would enter that film so true, much.
1: <laughs> Loved The Descendants, uh, though. Look, he did The Descendants, didn't he? I love The Descendants.
0: Yeah. yeah. Love The Descendants. I think that film's amazing. Uh, yep. Look, I'm a huge Alexander Payne film. Downsizing, you know, not a good movie by any means, but it's ambitious. I really, I understand what he was trying to do with it. It just didn't come together. And sometimes that happens. Uh, but and this the is episode? Returns of Form for him. Now, I don't want to talk yeah. about the movie too much. Have you seen it yet, Simon? Nope,
1: haven't seen it yet. No, okay. I'm review it in a few weeks' time.
0: Yeah, so the film doesn't get a release here till mid-January, and I don't want to talk about the movie ahead of Simon's Review too much, but what I wanted to flag was that release date, which I think is a huge mistake because I saw this film, what would it have been, like maybe the 12th of December, 13th, something thereabouts. Uh, The film is such a strong Christmas movie. Like, it takes place over a Christmas period at a private school where all the kids have got on their holiday break and there's just a couple of people that are left behind at the school. Uh, including Paul Giamatti, the, you know, main guy in it. The curmudgeon. You're watching this and it is a very sort of mortal um, in film in a lot of ways. It's a very sort of um, heart affirming movie. Okay, in the mm-hmm. way that Alexander Payne can, you know, tend to bring to the screen. I don't understand why this film's being released in January. The last thing I want to experience in January is something which is A, talking about Christmas, because there is nothing more just offensive to me than seeing a Christmas tree like three days after Christmas.
1: I knew you were going to say that. I'm exactly the same. Get it off, well, get everyone it off. pack is. it away. Yeah. Yeah. Pack like, it you away. know, there's so
0: much build up to it. And then we have the disappointment that's always Christmas Day. And then we just kind of want to get on with our lives again. Uh, January is not it, <laughs> But like January <laughs> is probably the most cynical month that we have all year. Because, you know, I would, uh, like-
1: I would suggest, uh, not argue, I would suggest that the thinking is that it's much easier to sell this as uh, an award season contender than it is to put it up against Wonka and Aquaman in a very crowded Christmas Boxing Day lineup. It's, it, it's, it's a tough sell as a Christmas it's- film just because it, it doesn't look like it. It's a much easier sell as an award worthy title. You were not going to get the word of mouth on
0: this one that you would have had if people were seeing it in early December here's the thing, Simon, this movie came out in the US late August. There's been plenty of time to release this movie between August and January, and instead they're dropping it like two weeks where it's going to perform at its
1: worst. Well, see, I think that, and I'm certain that the distributors are saying, hey, this is going to be, and and some of the award nominations that have come out recently in the holdovers is front and centre of them, suggest that it's going to be a lot easier to say, um, you know, put that big banner at the top of the paper, at the, at the top of all the posters that says four Academy Award nominations and get that audience in than it is to get a, a, a Christmas. Because it's, it's not really a family movie, is it? It's got some... No. no. This, okay, so this that's, is, a, that's a tough sell not in the Christmas period. This film is, and I was going to hold, hold on to this until it's you
0: reviewed it, but I'm going to talk about it now. This okay. is a throwback to the kind of movie that I just remember dominating Christmas viewing, well, that Christmas sort of period viewing, uh, back in, like, the early 2000s. So, you know, if you think about, say, when, you know, like, oh, what am I thinking about here? So, like, um, era of, like, Lost in Translation and Rolls Hammond Bombs, all these sort of films that always get released, like, the week after... Actually, no, so usually the week leading into Christmas and we're there for driving box office at your palace and your dendies and the Hmm. sort of eye house specialty cinemas. Like this, that sort of a movie. And it really felt like a throwback to that kind of a film. And I've really sort of seen something like that on a big screen for some time. Like it just felt so much of a return back to the kind of movies that we were watching in the cinema 20 years ago around this time of the year. But I also just sort of sat there thinking I would probably not respond to this anywhere near as strongly in three weeks' time as I am right now. Because as it stands right now, this is easily one of my favorite movies of the year and maybe one of my favorite movies of the decade. Like, it really hit me in the exact right way. Like, I really love this movie. And, yeah, I just think it's being done such a massive disservice. Nobody's going to be talking about it in mid-January. But if you'd released a early December, I think people would have been talking about it from an art house perspective. And no way is someone who is interested in holdovers going to hold off on seeing the holdovers in favour of seeing Wonka.
1: <laughs> no, I'm suggesting... No, no, I'm not suggesting that it's, it's going to cannibalise each other's audience. I'm suggesting there's just not enough screens to put it into with Wonka and Aquaman and whatever else is coming out this yeah, time of like year. Yeah, this this but this is a film that's made for Palace and Dendi. Like, Palace and Denny will make room... For holdovers, the new Alexander Payne film is absolutely getting Mm. screen space there. Yeah, but Event and Hoyts will make room for it if it's got five Academy Award nominations.
0: No, but Holdovers is never going to play that well in Event and Hoyts. Like that's not the game for this. The game for it is your
1: art house theaters. We'll see. We'll see moving forward, or time will tell. Whether Dan Barrett's prognostications. Well, just just as a thing here, I mean, it's
0: not like it's a George Clooney starring Alexander Payne movie. It's a Paul Giamatti starring Alexander Payne movie. It's not like Paul Giamatti is a known name that brings people out to events to get their giant popcorn and massive Coke. You're there for your glass of wine to sit back with his surly sense self. Which isn't to say Paul Giamatti isn't somebody's George Clooney. He's my George Clooney. Actually, that's not true. George Clooney is my George Clooney. But Paul Giamatti is deep and John dear to my heart. He's your George Clooney. Yeah,
1: it's true.
0: But, like, he's not driving box office like his tenants at your big multiplexes. That's not what this is.
1: No. Uh, all right. So we move to this day in history? This day in history. Alright, we're back. It's this day in history, Dan Barrett. I think I think these are doable. December 17, 1971. The seventh James Bond film has its world premiere. Oddly, in West Germany, which film was the seventh James Bond film?
0: So look, I've never been like a huge James Bond fan, but I do know when I was a kid I would have been able to tell you like all the James Bond movies in order and get it completely right. And I can't do that anymore. I I just can't. Like my brain is like that sort of trivia has just sort of dropped out entirely. Uh, So 71. um, Oh gosh. I know it's too early for Octopussy, but I can't think of what might've been right before then.
1: Diamonds are forever. Yeah. Diamonds are forever. 10 year old me would have nailed that. Yeah. Uh also on December 17, but jump forward to 2008, as a condition of his sentencing for deer poaching, a Missouri man is sentenced to watch what film every day for a year. <laughs> I love this. I mean, I don't know what this would be.
0: I mean, the deer hunter is the obvious sort of funny answer, but I yeah, I'm not sure. What do we got?
1: Bambi. Hello. He's sentenced oh. he's not going to watch the deer hunter. That would be like hunter's porn for him. No, it's definitely Bambi. Who'll ever forget when Bambi's mother died? Anyway, let's move on. December can, can I 20... some Bambi trivia? Yeah, sure. I've never seen it. Oh, wow. You've got to introduce that little girl of yours to Bambi. really mess her up good and proper early on. <laughs>
0: I, I'm messing her up in all sorts of ways that I think <laughs> I need to compound that.
1: Yeah. That's very true. December 20, 1985, after 20 years on US network ABC, which iconic sportscaster retires his famous voice, Don't know, don't care. Who is it? Howard Cosell. We all know Howard Cosell and that great voice that he did all those years ago.
0: Not really. I know people have referenced Howard Cosell as a person, but...
1: Time for the birthday quiz. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. All right, this is a tough one. These movie stars um, have all... Ford a particular kind of foe. Let's put it that way. December 17, 1975, Mila Jovovich, the beautiful Mila Jovovich. December 18, 1963, the beautiful Brad Pitt. December 19, 1969, Christy Swanson. Remember her? She went a bit crazy, got a bit anti vaccine in recent years, but had a fair, big crush on her growing up. And December 23, 2002, look at this young man, Finn Wolfhard. You may not know the name, but you do know the face if you're a Strange, Stranger Things fan. So what could these birthday buddies all have in common?
0: I mean, you said it's a bit difficult, but come on. I mean, Villa Jovic, Resident Evil, Brad Pitt, Interview mm. with the Vampire, Christy Swanson was the original Buffy. Uh, Finn Wolfhard, I'm not sure what his vampire movie was, but they all, you know, appeared opposite vampires. <sighs>
1: If I was in a better mood, I'd probably give that. It's that they've all at some point sort of fought the undead. Yes, you're right. Millie Jovovich uh, in Resident Evil. Brad Pitt, I was thinking more World War Z with the zombies and the, okay. the infected. Chris, Christy Swanson, yes, was Buffy. And Finn Wolfhard is the new generation of Ghostbusters. He's front and centre of that. Plus, of course, all that supernatural stuff in Stranger Things. So, um, yes, they've all fought the undead. Uh, you know, I love my horror films. Okay. So.
0: I'm, yeah, I've got to take my vampire thing.
1: All right, take your van. I'm
0: taking it as a win. Good one. Yeah,
1: Yeah. not a bad one. All right, that brings us to the end of this week's episode 152 of Screenwatching. It's the 151? I thought last week was 150. No, last week was 151. We're up to 152. who can keep hubs? Who can keep hubs? So many rivers of gold. (laughs) Rivers of gold. That always makes me think of going to the toilet. Um... The where you should know is screen watching podcast at Gmail is where you can write to us and send all your disagreements with Dan. Uh, uh, Oh, I've forgotten all the other ones at screen watching, or usually find its way to us on YouTube, Facebook, and moving away from X and Twitter. I've made that call as you will know through the week. We're now on Threads, where you can see all our posts and keep up to date with what we're doing.
0: Yeah, good move, Uh, folks. Yeah, folks, I reckon probably should track me down on the internet, I'm just generally around the place. But if you want my newsletter, check out alwaysbewatching.com. It's a daily update to all the screen news and information you need, mostly TV streaming stuff.
1: Your account and your remembering of Andre Broward during the week was a really beautiful personal take on what a huge loss and what a surprise loss um, that was so, um, great writing. And yes, we'll dedicate this episode to Mr. Brower, who has left us far too soon. An amazing talent. So much more. Left yeah. To
0: I mean, there's a couple of actors sort of through my life where you hear that, you know, the, um, died, and it's like, okay, well, I mean, some of them are actual sort of gut punches. Others are just kind of like, Oh, it's, you know, that's a bit sad, but you can kind of get on with your life. But like, this is one of the ones that sort of actually really hit me. Um, and only yep. because I guess, um, you know, he was in one of the greatest TV shows of all time being Homicide Life on the Streets and he was unquestionably the best thing about that program and that was kind of like his real sort of coming out. Everyone just sort of went, wait, who the hell is this guy? Because he's just kind of incredible mm. on that program. Uh, but also Homicide just happened to coincide entirely with me sort of coming online as a TV viewer and actually appreciating TV as a art form and not just a delivery mechanism for cool cartoons I was watching as a young kid. But, no, I mean, Homicide debuted here like, you know, about uh, 92, 93, uh, and I sort of came online with that I was also watching, you know, The X-Files and ER and a bunch of those other really seminal early 90s dramas.
1: The gut punch celebrity death that happened to me with Robin Williams, and I've got to say, maybe I've gone back and watched one Robin Williams movie since then. It's just really hard to to revisit what he was now that he's gone is, is that going to be the same thing with Brower? Are you going to be able to sort of lean into, to homicide well, I, or Brooklyn nine, nine for that matter?
0: Um, look, I mean, honestly, if I never have to watch Brooklyn nine, nine ever again, I'll be perfectly fine <laughs> with that. Uh, homicide life on the street though. Uh, literally I've been just championing the idea of pressing play on an episode the last few days. So, yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll give it a go. Maybe I'll to find it a bit sort of more difficult, but I think it's really just a celebration of this guy's work. And, it, it yeah. probably comes down to the idea that if you were to sit down and watch a Robin Williams um, film, you're sort of investing two hours in like a singular piece. Whereas I think episodic TV is maybe just a little bit more digestible. Mm.
1: Yeah. yeah like, right, I, mean, I, can watch, I can still
0: watch news radio episodes with Phil Hartman and i got that same sort of gut punch from that.
1: Oh yeah. That was tough. Yeah, that was tough. Mm. God, keep it light ending on an ending on a dower note. Anyway, we'll be back next week with more screen watching. How good is life? Life is great.
0: See you next week.